This yes. is hell. Okie doke. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime because this is hell and there is a huge fortune, like in billions of dollars, to be made producing eggs eggs like from chickens and we are all witnessing why that huge fortune is being made with skyrocketing egg prices here in the united states especially if you buy specialty eggs like those that are cage free or organic the media has been offering all sorts of reasons why eggs are going up in price they've suggested it's caused by high feed and energy costs high demand inflation price gouging Regulations related to cage-free eggs, growing popularity of high-end eggs, as well as meatless vegetarian and keto diets. Even the war in Ukraine, cross-border egg smuggling, and backyard chickens are reported to play a role. Meanwhile, Fox News conspiracy theorists are claiming the real cause is chicken farms are being burned down and commercial feed is causing impotence and some huge conspiracy to undermine the American food system. But President Biden will never admit it. And at least that's, again, according to Fox News Channel. Returning to This Is Hell will be award-winning freelance writer Boyce Upholt, who wrote the New Republic article, The Frightening Cost of Cheap Eggs, Why Paying More for Eggs Could Save Us from Another Pandemic. Boyce won the 2019 award for investigative journalism from the James Beard Foundation. His writing is focused on the way we use and imagine the non-human world. He covers, among other subjects, public lands, exploration, biodiversity, foodways, infrastructure, and the cultural history of wilderness. His work has appeared in the Atlantic, National Geographic, the Oxford American, and many other publications, and has been noted in the Best American Science and Nature series. Boyce is currently working on a book about the Mississippi River, a history of what's been done to it, and a travelogue showing the results. Boyce was on the show back in September of 2022, last year, when we talked with him about his then-just-posted New Republic article, Will the Next Pandemic Start with Chickens? This spring, a virulent strain of bird flu ripped through the United States' U.S. farms. The public hardly noticed that we could ignore the disease shows just how little we've learned about the origin of new viruses. And in this age of pandemics and COVID, that's not a good thing. Follow Boyce on Twitter at Boyce Upholt, B-O-Y-C-E Upholt. Find out more about Boyce at BoyceUpholt.com. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming, and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Lindsay Gorey. Anything new by you, Lindsay? Probably. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm cat-sitting for a friend right now. It seems like all of my... Uh, like three of my Chicago native friends are like, I gotta leave for the winter. And, like I'll leave at once. <laughs> Where'd they go? Um, I don't know. You know, I I guess uh, one of them went to Mexico. One of them went to like the Bahamas or something. I don't even know. I block it out. I block it out. <laughs> so you're just going over to people's homes and cat sitting at this point in time. Just one of my friends. Okay. Uh, my other friend uh, is in. Austin and I don't know it's but all these it's just that all my friends all these people are very active in like mutual aid and Mm -hmm. so that's also I my weeks are now different because I also have to 
do some stuff for them that they usually do for mutual aid and they're on vacation now so so you're filling in for mutual aid people as well yes awesome. i'm like i want a snowbird i want a snowbird though <laughs> i'm mad because i'm from arizona i'm like i'm supposed to be back in phoenix and, and but no i don't i can't afford that lifestyle I have but to stay put but don't worry uh you know with uh climate change and global warming it'll be We'll have uh, weather like Phoenix in no time. It'll <laughs> that, be great. That sounds like great news, Chuck. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Producing is uh, Lindsey Gorey, as I uh, was just saying. And uh, for me, I don't know, I'm getting a little worried about Mel, uh, the bar cat at the bar downstairs from us, Carrie's Lounge. He's had a sneeze for a few weeks. I don't know if you've heard this or not. No, I haven't. But it's, the thing is, I mean, I my cat got real sick with an upper respiratory infection a few years ago. So, so. what do they do? Well, uh, if he's just sneezing a little bit, he should, like, it might, he might, you know, his immune system might handle it because, like, all the other cats that had been um, impacted by this virus that, or whatever it was that my one cat got really sick with, all the other ones were fine and they just had some, like, mild sneezing. So, um, I don't know. What I do now is I feed my cats little, a l- little bit of mushrooms uh, <laughs> every now and then, like, and I mean... Um, the mushrooms like turkey tail and my talkie, uh, you know, these and immune, that's and reishi, for- yeah, they're, uh, immune supporting mushrooms. Good oh. for humans. They're safer and like dogs, cats, um, and humans. So, oh, I, well, well, we should do that because I, I thought maybe I had brought some kind of virus from my home as our cats have also been sneezing. So I've been washing my hands between petting Mel and yeah, my that's cats a good idea. To make yeah. it less likely that I'm, you know, transferring a disease from one to the other. Mm-hmm. But now my cats are no longer sneezing, and Mel's sneezing fits are getting worse and worse. He's sneezing more often, and when he does, he sneezes far more violently than he was before. And he's having trouble sneaking up on rats because hmm. he's constantly <laughs> sneezing. I was uh, in the beer garden the other day, and he was outside in the parking lot between the guardrail and the fence, and all of a sudden I just heard him sneeze on the other side of the fence, and I was like, I know he's yeah. out there, honey. Well, like I said yesterday, he hissed at me, which was kind of a which weird Which is really weird. Thing. He doesn't usually do that, so maybe he's feeling a little vulnerable right now. Um, but uh, I don't know. You could take him to the vet, but there, I didn't take my cat to the vet because he was really sick, like really sick. Um, and he eventually got to be okay, but he literally spent a week in my bed. But so. it's hard to get, you know, like, because Mel isn't obviously completely feral, but he's pretty close to it, and mm-hmm. it's really hard to get him into, like, a cat carrier or get him to a vet. So I think what we're going to do, I think what Pete's going to do is there's this, uh, and it's also hard to make an appointment with a vet. We're having trouble finding a vet for our own cats. So I think what Pete's going to do is he's going to call up the service that does actual vet house calls for like 80 bucks or something like that and so i think we're gonna have a vet come over here and check out mel which i'm hoping for and i kind of want to see mel get an in uh, get a, an examination from a vet i think that would be pretty fun and uh, if people do want to send a get well card mel does not have email or smartphone because he uh, he doesn't want to be tracked by the surveillance state but if you want to send him a uh, uh, get well card, you can. You can just address it to Mel, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And it's bad enough that he has a chip in his ear, you know, already. He doesn't need to be tracked any more than that. Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from Hell? This week's for question from Hell. If you could spy on anyone or anything in the United States, who or what would it be? 
I'm gonna say Bill Gates because I think he was the one who put the chip in Bill in uh, Mel's ear, and I just I want to spy on him now. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Mel wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of our stuff online right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can email it to us. As always, we will be announcing this week's winner at the end of this week's show, following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. Lindsay, what is Jeff talking about this week? During this week's moment, Jeff shows us the invisible. And you thought that was impossible. You may or may not have heard that a past guest on our show, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Seymour Hirsch, has a new article posted at his Substack. Yes, even Cy Hirsch has a Substack, and I'm starting to think that I'm not only the last person who refuses to own a smartphone, but I'm also the last person who does not have a Substack. The title of his new article that's got everybody talking, except the media here in the United States, which is why we want to talk about it, is how America took out the Nord Stream pipeline. The New York Times called it a mystery, but the United States executed a covert sea operation that was kept secret until now. So as soon as I found out Cy had a new investigation that was being ignored by the U.S. press, I emailed him to ask if he'd be on the show again. This would be his third appearance on the show, so I figured I I had an in. I'd already talked to him, had two 40-plus-minute conversations with him, and we'd gone back and forth in email several times. So I emailed Cy, and sure enough, within minutes, he replied agreeing to be on the show. However, after going back and forth, we have yet to confirm a date and time, although it is very likely to happen next week. Internally, among staff members here on the show, there are questions as to whether we should have Seymour back on the show to discuss his new story, which, like all of his work, is immediately being scrutinized as his findings are almost always controversial. But a quick look at the record, uh, you know, shows that his reporting exposed the 1969 My Lai massacre and its cover-up during the Vietnam War, for which he received the Pulitzer Prize. He has won five George Polk Awards and two National Magazine Awards. He's the author of the 1983 book The Price of Power, Kissinger in the Nixon White House, a biography of Henry Kissinger that won the National Book Critics Circle Award. His writing on Abu Ghraib and torture blew the lid off the story. He was on our show most recently when uh, he reported in 2016 that the U.S. was lying about how Osama bin Laden was killed, which he describes in his book, The Killing of Osama bin Laden. At one time, he was of such a concern to the government that Dick Cheney, as an advisor to President Gerald Ford, suggested searching Seymour's home. In other words, he's a pretty controversial person, and a lot of these things do sound like they happened in the past, but, you know, he's been doing like a half a century of really great reporting. Then we got an email from another person who is also controversial because whenever we mention him on air, we get emails from people who apparently hate him. Mark Ames wrote to us during yesterday's show saying, Hi, Chuck, just interviewed Cy Hirsch. I listened to your 2016 interview with him to prepare, but I have to be honest, it didn't, I have to be honest, it didn't prepare me. He was more relaxed with you and more relaxed when I did the pre-interview. But damn, when we started recording, it was like getting run over by an effing cam as, which is a huge Russian truck, and backed up and run over again. Did you have that experience? Yours, Mark Ames. Yes, I did, Mark. He and uh, people like uh, Noam Chomsky can at times get really excited and go on a roll to the point where in a 45-minute interview, I, I can only get in like three or four questions at the most, and it does feel like being run over by a truck. 
It's, that's a really great comparison. When I asked Mark about Seymour's news story on the U.S. being behind the Nord Stream pipeline explosion, Mark wrote back saying he, his latest writing is great. Even he has a detail here, or even if he has a detail here or there wrong, and I'm not saying he does, but the piece seems very solid to me, and no one has come up with anything close to this that contradicts it. Couple that with the weirdness about the Germans and Swedes and quote-unquote unnamed European officials all saying Russia didn't do it, and it's pretty clear. Gotta admit, even after all these years, I didn't think the U.S. would do something this stupid to its own top ally. But here we are. By the way, when I first talked, I recalled uh, Seymour Hirsch for the pre-interview on Friday. I told him I was listening to your This Is Hell interview to prepare, so hopefully that planted a seed in your favor. He was F-bombing throughout the whole pre-interview. <laughs> a lot friendlier. During the actual interview, I've never in my life felt like someone was about to call me a dumbass and hang up on me like I did with Seymour. He'll try to keep the interview short, shorter than your last one. I had to fight like a whaler, like a whaler, to keep him on the phone. So will we have Seymour Hirsch on the show about his latest controversial reporting next week? Will we? he agree to be on and then run me over like a Russian truck? Will he try to end the interview early? Will Seymour call me a dumbass? Who knows? Tune in next week to find out. All that said, I remembered how I figured we might have an in with Cy because he had been on the show twice before. But he said in an email to me that he is scared to death of being on a show called This Is Hell. In other words, we're just another interview request floating out in the ether and nothing more. And my ego takes another hit because guests on our show do not remember being on a show with the very memorable name of This Is Hell. Coming up, the frightening cost of cheap eggs we will have this week in Rotten History. Lindsay will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell. We have some breaking news about something very special that will be happening on Patreon this week. And we'll tell you everything happening on tomorrow's show, including this week's final guest. Live from the United States, where we know the price of everything and the value of nothing, this is hell. And one thing we do not apparently value is keeping ourselves safe from viruses that can become pandemics. Because if we did, we would not have a problem paying for expensive eggs if it meant keeping us safe from a virus that can become a pandemic. Yes, unbelievably, more expensive eggs can save us. Here to explain, returning to This Is Hell, award-winning freelance writer Boyce Upholt wrote the New Republic article, The Frightening Cost of Cheap Eggs. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Boyce. Thank you. It's good to be here. I mean, good, maybe the wrong word, but I'm, <laughs> I'm happy to be invited back. I'm there you go. There you go. It's yeah. ne it's never good because this is hell, right? So you write right, exactly. a, few, a few weeks ago, uh, the egg shelves at my local Whole Foods in New Orleans were nearly empty. Uh, note citing an egg shortage limited customers to no more than two cartons apiece. Oh, no, I thought it's back. What do you think... What did you think was back? Did you think this, uh, see this as a return of the supply chain issues caused by the pandemic? What did you think was back when shelves were empty and customers were being limited to buying two dozen eggs per purchase? 
so it was very clear to me that what was back was bird flu. So, um, you know, as I spoke about last time I was on the show last fall, um, I spent a week or so out in Nebraska last summer when this, this first, this strain of bird flu first was kind of at that point actually disappearing across the United States. But it was kind of clear to me from the reporting I was doing on bird flu that that disappearance was going to be brief. And that when migrating birds came back South, that we would see it popping up everywhere. And yeah. So when I saw uh, expensive eggs. I was like, oh yeah, I guess, I guess bird flu, you know, I, I turned to other stories for a while, but that woke me back up and, and made me realize that as I had expected, bird flu was hitting us hard again. So globalization has clearly shown its vulnerabilities in times of crisis, especially during this pandemic and during this crisis, when it comes to the avian flu that's killed a record number of chickens here in the United States. The media refuses to use that word globalization like they refuse to use neoliberalism. And instead they say the problems are supply chain issues does globalization play a role in issues revolving around modern egg farming oh yeah certainly i mean i was i thought you were gonna ask about prices which the prices are up in part because of globalization uh, you know the war in ukraine affects global grain prices and grain price grain has to be fed to chickens so so it some of the price increases are because of globalization, but um, also, yeah, in terms of farming practices, I mean, the sort of factory farming industrial practices that were first developed here in the United States have sort of spread across the world because they are, at least in sort of sticker price, able to deliver cheap food to, to people all over the world. And you write that last summer on a reporting trip, the one that we discussed on the show last summer, uh, I visited a rural Nebraska county where several chicken farms had been hit by avian influenza. Local farmers were forced to slaughter nearly a million birds, but one small sliver of a national massacre, some 58 million birds were culled throughout 2022. So you were on the show in September to talk about that article, which was called, uh, Will the Next Pandemic Start with Chickens? The New Republic added this very long subheadline this spring, a virulent strain of bird flu ripped through the through US farms. The public hardly noticed that we could ignore the disease shows just how little we've learned about the origin of new viruses. To you, what explains that kind of I don't know, denialism, if you will, not only by the public, but the media that is supposed to be informing the public that the public hardly even noticed a national massacre of chicken. What explains that kind of denialism or just a lack of reporting? Uh, several things. I mean, part of it is just I think we've sort of aren't don't you know, food, the food production system is so far away from most of our lives that it can kind of do what it does. And um, most consumers don't need to take note. And I think a lot of the powers that be have reason to sort of, uh, yeah, not, we, we don't want to admit that uh, production practices can contribute to things like bird flu. And so that story is not widely reported. Um, and that like, yeah, the, this bird flu itself, it, it was a big deal back in 1997 when it first hit Hong Kong and people were dying from it there. Um, but it sort of has been lingering in the background for so long that uh, there, there is this sort of complacency of like, well, I guess I guess it's just around and, and we, you know, it, we just wind up ignoring it because it's, it's been there so long almost. But it's not like the media is entirely in denial and completely in denial about the role avian flu plays in the high price of eggs, uh, as you can find all sorts of reports online. But the more mainstream corporate outlets have found a range of 
additional reasons behind the high prices of eggs, like the ones I was mentioning earlier, high feed and energy costs, high demand, inflation, price gouging, regulations related to cage-free eggs, growing popularity of high-end eggs, as well as meatless, vegetarian, and keto diets, the war in Ukraine, as you were mentioning. Forbes had a headline claiming the cause of eggs being expensive is, quote-unquote, not what you think. Forbes then re- uh, reported it was avian flu, which is what you should be thinking. Do all those factors play a role? It's just that the driving force of the price of eggs, more than any and all other factors, is avian flu. Is the answer to why egg egg prices are going up avian flu, or is it a number of factors, including avian flu? It's simply a number of factors, including avian flu. I mean, like every, everything is going up, right? We're we're living in an inflationary age right now, and and there are all these all these things are contributing to it. Um, the reason, I mean, eggs just are notably going up faster than many other things, um, and and that that avian flu, as far as I can tell, seems to be what is driving sort of this like surge for egg prices in particular. And it's interesting. I mean, like there are, are accusations of price gouging and things like that, in part because. I think for it was around six percent of like the U.S. laying flock was called for avian influenza, and yet prices went up like more than a hundred percent, which seems crazy. But but it's also the weird economics of eggs. If, if if you need eggs, there's not really much else you can buy, and so people the price goes up quickly in order to try and uh, stabilize supply and demand. You wrote of the avian flu that started in early 2022, a year ago, and you're reporting on it last summer that this disease is carried by migrating waterfowl and was waning during my visit last summer since the birds had already passed north in the spring. But the outbreak's impact was already clear in supermarkets where the average cost of a carton increased from $2.05 in March to $3.12 in August, and as the birds winged south again last fall, the flu returned. Once more, millions of birds were euthanized in uh, December. Prices hit a record high, $4.25 per dozen, more than double what consumers were paying a year earlier. So you point out that the waterfowl that are distributing the disease are geese and ducks. How are they, how are they transmitting this disease to chickens? Um, yeah, so the, unluckily for us, uh, ducks and geese aren't particularly hard hit by this virus, so it's able to kind of survive in their bodies. And then as they're migrating, they, as anyone who walks outside during migratory season knows, they'll leave behind some feces. And in those feces, this virus is festering. And so if, if uh, that is sort of the, the pathway, if, if chickens walk through that, I mean, on big farms, there are other factors too. A lot of farmers seem to believe that, um, you know, maybe the bird sneaks into one of these barns or somehow sort of like a little bit of fecal matter goes through the big fans that they're using to, to ventilate these places. But um, yeah, that is that is the pathway. It's, it's bird poop. So uh, there's, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of Canada geese and ducks in my neighborhood. There's a natural migratory uh, point in uh, the park outside my back door. Just south of me, like another mile and a half, there's a cemetery that has a natural migratory point for Canada geese. In any way, are we in any kind of health or safety uh, danger? Because there's tons of duck and geese crap all over these parks. Yeah. Um, I I mean, I'll say two different things here. One, almost certainly that duck and geese crap has some flu in it. Um, I just learned this morning, I live a block from a little waterway here in New Orleans, and a friend texted me and 
he had seen on Reddit or something. Someone had found three dead ducks there, and, and the State Department of Wildlife was like, "Yep, that's got to be it, bird flu." Um, so it, it's yeah, we're, you and I are both in the, the Mississippi migratory pathway, I believe, and, and anywhere along up and down that sort of column of America, you're going to be seeing it. I don't think that um, that crap in in your parks is a necessarily a risk to humans i think when we worry about i do think it is worth being worried about this flu jumping to humans and it has always been worth being worried about um but the bigger danger is not that you would catch it from a duck but that a chicken farm would catch it from a duck and then in that chicken farm where there's tens to hundreds of thousands to millions of birds um this sort of virus will ramp itself up and then potentially get to humans you point out how the media has been in an egg frenzy with stories detailing everything from cross-border egg smuggling to a boom in backyard chickens. First of all, is that cross-border egg smuggling? Is that actually happening? Uh, I didn't go too deep into it, but yeah, it, sounds, it seems like it's smuggling, maybe the wrong word. I think people just didn't realize it was illegal to bring eggs from Mexico to the U.S. And they're like, well, eggs are really expensive. So as I go north to visit my family, I'm going to bring some eggs. Um, interestingly, the reason why it's illegal to bring Mexican eggs into the U.S. is because of fears of bird flu in Mexico. So. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's that's really funny because I just think it's funny because every, if you buy something in Mexico, they just say, well, you're smuggling it. You know, like it's right. it, like it's an, like it's a crime. So there recently was a front page story in The New York Times on, as they report, the increasing number of folks shelling out for inflation chickens to af- offset egg costs and shortages uh, should know that it's likely not going to be a money saving ve- venture. These are so-called inflation chickens. Are they? Re- is that really a thing? Because anecdotally, I mean, I've not seen a big increase in the number of backyard chickens, which is not a new phenomenon here in Chicago. I've been seeing people with backyard chickens here in Chicago for over 30 years, so it's not like it's a new thing. But I haven't seen a huge increase in backyard chickens. Is that is inflation chickens? Are, are inflation chickens? Is that really a thing? I have no idea. I mean, I, same thing here. I, I've. I used to have chickens. I would love to get them again, and I but I haven't seen many more in New Orleans. Um, so I would guess that it's probably this is probably you know reporters searching for a story. But I, I'm sure at least a handful of people have have made this purchase, um, and I, I, I'm all for it. I mean, I think you got to be really careful with those chickens because of all that duck crap around. Um, but I, I think it's a great. It may not be cheaper, but I think it's a great way for people to uh, have a, a better relationship with our food. Sure. Yeah, it's a great way. And uh, backyard chicken eggs are really fantastic. I've had them before yep. on numerous occasions. They They're really great. Uh, you write that one farmer in Idaho has apparently found a pr- profitable niche by freeze-drying and pulverizing his eggs. The powder, which costs about $20 per dozen eggs, lasts more than two decades. The news cycle hit its nadir uh, this month when Fox News's chief conspiracist Tucker Carlson suggested the Biden administration and mainstream media were covering up the real causes of the egg shortage, chicken farms burning down, and commercial feed that causes impotence. If Tucker Carlson wanted to make a culture war thing out of it, he could have blamed it on those people who eat organic and cage-free eggs, yuppie, hipster, non-binary, whatever group he wanted to get his audience to hate. Is there anything suggesting that farms catching on fire or impotent chickens are also contributing factors to egg prices increasing. Not that I've seen. No, I actually wasn't. My my editor is the one who made me aware of, of what Carlson was saying, so I didn't I didn't bother to investigate that too deeply because uh, it's Tucker Carlson one and two. I just not, nothing. None of the literature I was reading or uh, suggested that anything of the sort, or or none of the farmers I talked to were talking about any fires like this. So, um, yeah. 
didn't see more delving into. No, and I was thinking about, I did a little bit of research myself, and I didn't see any increase in chicken farm fires or anything about feed making chickens impotent. I just have no idea where he where he got that from because all of those, you know, conspiracy theories are always built on some sort of kernel of truth, but I couldn't find even that one kernel. You write mostly though the coverage has pondered one question, why are eggs so pricely? Uh, and you say that the answer is real, relatively straightforward, yet the, the egg panic should be raising bigger questions. Might this virus jump to humans, and can anything be done to stop it? These answers are more complicated and may depend on whether we're willing to give up cheap eggs. Do we know what the likelihood is that the avian flu may jump to humans? We don't, um, and I want to be cautious here. I think in some ways this piece was a, a quick web piece, and so sometimes I, you, it, there's the motivation to overstate it. I mean, I keep, continue to track the discussion of scientists, and a lot of scientists are saying, like, we're we're no more fearful now than they, we were before. Um, I mean, I think that the thing that worries me and is that um, there was a mink farm in Spain where a number of minks died from this flu, um, and there's a difference between mammals and birds, like Flus are adapted to specific species or specific kingdoms of animals. And so um, a lot of bird flus, mammals can't contract them. Uh, this one, not only do we know that, that they can, but it looks like they were able to pass it from mink to mink on this farm in Spain. And and one thing I read said that um, mink respiratory systems are pretty decent models for human respiratory systems. So it, it suggests that uh, we're not far from a, a virus evolving to to jump from human to human again some a lot of scientists that i've been reading say you know it, it's the, these things are remain unlikely these small evolutions um I, I remember in the first piece i wrote about this that we talked about before though i, I my the way I, I processed it was like should we be scared uh it's sort of like we, we always should have been scared uh, and th- this is always this has been a problem for 20 years that we just kind of let ourselves forget about for a while so i don't know to what whether we're at more risk right now, but uh, because there are all these scary things happening, at the very least, it it should prompt us to wake up and say, maybe we want to do things to make sure this doesn't happen and doesn't get to humans. So are inexpensive eggs cheap and have low costs because corners are cut when it comes to the safety and health of chickens? Is the problem not too many government regulations, as some people are suggesting online, but not enough government regulation? Yeah, I don't even know if I would. The phrase "corners" or "cut" is, it captures it because the what allows for cheap eggs are technological developments that like go hand in hand with diminished chicken health. Uh, I mean, like you, you these chickens have been bred to grow faster, which means they haven't been bred to develop immune systems. So, sort of, it's necessary to, to often pump them full of antibiotics. They're stuffed into. I mean, in order to to get. To make the supply cheap and easy to develop, they they want to pack them into tight spaces, but that just you know presents a really tempting uh, you know buffet of bodies, as I said in the piece, for the virus to to jump into. So it's less that corners have been cut and more that like the practices in place that allow eggs to be cheap sort of go hand in hand with viral risk. And you also point out that modern egg farms are less agricultural than sci-fi dystopian. The birds are stuffed into cages that offer less than a single page of printer paper's worth of space. The cages are stacked row after row with some facilities housing more than a million birds. The feed is carefully formulated, the light deliberately manipulated so that the hens are tricked into churning out as many eggs as possible. 
what role then do modern egg farming practices play in the avian flu? After all, they're not raising geese and ducks, just the uh, birds that, which are the birds that carry the flu. So how does modern egg farming, how do those practices, how does that uh, exacerbate the flu even more? Sure. Yeah. A couple of things. I mean, like there are various strains of flu, right? And so this one is one, it's always evolving. And the one that we're worried about right now is, is the one we're worried about right now. Historically, um, big industrial poultry farms have been a site where sort of like not particularly virulent forms of flu have because through this buffet of bodies kind of evolved quickly into more pathogenic forms of flu. So there's this historical pattern of that happening. Um, 1997, I mean, again, a previous, this is hell guest, um, Rob, uh, Rob Wallace. Am I hope I'm not messing names up here. No, you're um, right. yes. Brain fart for a moment uh, has, has looked into that and, and noted that you know in 1997 when bird flu was first breaking out in, in uh, Hong Kong, it's sort of just on the heels of these industrial practices um, coming to China, and so it's it's hard to disentangle these. So it's it's not like yeah these farms in the U.S. today caused this flu, um, but they are just such risk factors. I mean one one of the leading bird virologists I talked to said you know it just it, it's a such an amplifier now that the flu is out there and, and all of these bodies as a reservoir for the virus really increases the chances of a, a spillover effect. Um, so that it, it's, it's this, it makes it all more risky. Um, and one thing that didn't make this piece in part, because these are, these numbers are just estimates, but, but from what I can tell from various kind of databases, um, the rate at which different kinds of chicken farms are hit are quite different. It seems that like, Really big chicken farms, 100,000 birds or more, I think around 10% of those farms have been hit by bird flu. And I would think the million plus farms, that must be even higher. Um, for small farms, and that's a, even that is a loose phrase because I'm talking about you know 50,000 birds maybe, um, 10,000 to 50,000 birds, it looks to me like probably less than half of 1% of those farms have been hit. Um, so even that pattern shows uh, just the way these big farms are more susceptible to catching this. And if they're more susceptible to catching it, they're more susceptible to sort of amplifying it or spreading it further. You mentioned the story in Spain about the infection or the virus going from mink to mink. Rob Wallace mentioned that on our show last week. That seems to be a story that you're very concerned about. It's a story that Rob is very concerned about. Yet I didn't see much coverage of this in the media whatsoever. Have you seen any changes in the way that the media covers what can turn into pandemics since the COVID-19 outbreak happened? Uh, some, but not much. I noticed after I turned in this piece and before it published, the New York Times did do, run a piece about um, about this risk that mentioned the the mink farm. Uh, it was interesting to me that that uh, another writer post pointed this out, and I was like, yeah, that is curious that it was not. It was in the opinion section, um, so it was an opinion writer and not a reporter who who wrote the piece. Uh, and she seemed very well qualified for it, but it was just an interesting interesting to me that that's where the piece got stuffed. Um, so there has been, I mean, like if you read, I, I follow sort of some of the scientific journals, Nature, places like that are discussing this in more depth, but it, it's still not hitting most of the mainstream media as far as I can tell. Again, the front page of the New York Times last week ran a story on high-rise hog farms, which is not something that hipsters do, but it, as the uh, Times describes, is a hulking 26-story high-rise towering above a rural village in central China inside the edifice, which resembles the monolithic housing blocks seen across China and stands as tall as the London Tower that houses Big Ben. The pigs are monitored on high-definition cameras by uniformed technicians 
stations in a NASA-like command center. Each floor operates like a self-contained farm for the different stages of a young pig's life, an area for pregnant pigs, a room for farrowing piglets, spots for nursing, and space for fault, uh, fattening the hogs. So is more factory farming not less our future because that does not bode well this the huge i know it's a uh, pig farm and not a chicken farm but that uh, operation in china does not bode well if we are concerned about animal born illnesses that could devastate livestock vegetation and may cross to uh, infect humans is the future more factory farming i hope not um i mean i i mentioned those pig farms in, in my first piece um in part because it seems like like the 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 word that the industry always uses is biosecurity, um, and it's right. So this idea of like we have to keep our animals separate from wild animals, um, and if that is our answer, I feel like what we see in China is, I guess, the future we're going for. It, it, it seems really. I mean, the the photos in, in that story in the Times were wild, and you see these people sort of like playing ping pong inside these rooms that they can't leave because if they leave, they're exposing themselves to to wild birds. Um, but at this point, it's it's a it's we face a conundrum because it's like we do we I I think small scale farming helps, but it, it uh, putting small pasture birds out in pastures in migratory pathways does run the risk of those birds catching the flu. Um, in these smaller flocks, I think that poses less risk of that flu sort of blowing up in the same way. Um, but we are going to have to think really carefully about how we want to structure poultry moving forward. If we think, I think uh, my fear is that we're just going to continue down the same road. We are speaking with writer Boyce Uphold, who wrote the New Republic article, The Frightening Cost of Cheap Eggs. You can follow Boyce on Twitter at Boyce Uphold and find out more about Boyce at BoyceUpholt.com. He is currently working on a book about the Mississippi River. And when that comes out, we will definitely have him on the show. Uh, so you, uh, you also point out that for an influenza virus, modern egg farming barns are paradise. Since the chickens have been engineered to maximize egg production, they're genetically identical, a buffet, as you were saying, of bodies where disease spreads rapidly. So is the answer just making the chickens in big farming lots like these uh, just have a diverse population? Can you just flip the switch and have a diverse population and the chicken production will continue without the risk of viruses? Uh, you, there's no switch to flip. Um, almost all of the chickens, even chickens on, on small farms these days, tend to come from, I think it's two sort of breeding companies. Um, and I, I wish I'd, I didn't go back into this, but when I was reporting more deeply on this last summer, I wound up talking to some people about sort of we are so far down the road of breeding these chickens for these sort of fast production purposes, whether it's fast meat production in broilers or, or like high egg capacity in laying hens, that it's really hard to backtrack these days. Um, like the chickens, I think they're super inbred. It's just, yeah, it, it, we do need to think about this. And there are a couple small companies thinking about this. And, and obviously, I think there are freeholders around the world that probably still have more wild bred chickens. Um, but by and large, in the United States, uh, it's going to be really hard to track down a chicken that, that does not have come from a, a fairly narrow gene pool at this point. Wow. So basically capitalism has destroyed one of our major food sources that's really great so you quote virologist michelle uh, will i believe your name is uh, telling you last summer these birds are immuno 
immunologically naive and act as an enormous amplifier of the virus. This obviously means that we have enormous reservoirs for avian influenza and increases risk for viral transmission. It is with this enormous amplification that we see zoonotic spillover events. Zoonotic events are those where viruses are passed from animals to humans. How much does the U.S. public or even the media accept that the current COVID pandemic is in fact zoonotic and was not the result of uh, something else like uh, being created in a lab? How much do you think the public accepts the idea that this is a zoonotic disease? Because, you know, that's the starting point for us to have a better understanding of pandemics like COVID-19. Yeah, yeah, it's hard for me to tell. I mean, I, obviously, there are a lot of conspiracy theories out there um, about lab leaks and things like that. I do, it does seem to me most people I spend time with seem to have accepted sort of the established science here. But even so, I think that it, uh, even when it's accepted as a zoonotic spillover event, um, again, sometimes that leads us to to the wrong conclusions of well, if it's coming from wild animals, then we just gotta gotta keep ourselves as far away from wild animals as possible instead of more fundamentally rethinking our relationship with the natural world. Why not? Why can't we just keep ourselves away from uh, wildlife to solve the problem? I mean, because then we get giant uh, pig farms where the workers can't <laughs> leave for days at a time because uh, that's the only way to keep themselves separate from from birds that are flying in the sky all the time. So is. Uh, is pandemic denialism grounded in a denialism of the problems with factory farming, that our food system does not work safely for the animals, the workers, or the consumers? Is this the kind of you know, unwillingness of the public we often see when it comes to having a more systemic critique or analysis of any kind of crisis? And what, what explains that, that kind of unwillingness to have that systemic look at a crisis? I don't know. It's something I've been thinking about. I mean, I... I... When I, whenever I publish something like this, I hear from a lot of vegans and like, well, the answer is just to stop eating eat meat entirely, which I'm sort of unwilling to do. And so I, I'm like, probably rationally, it might make sense to do that. I think it's, it's so ingrained in our culture, but it's also just like, I continue to go to the store. I mean, from, from time to time, I still go to a, a fast food restaurant and get chicken that I know is sort of ethically and uh, public health wise a problem, but it's so overwhelming of, of you know, my practices as a consumer aren't going to change this. And so... You know, uh, when I first started reporting on this stuff, I had a lot of friends that were just exhausted from COVID and were like, you know what, you, you, like while we're sitting and getting beers, let's not talk about chickens because I have enough going on in my life. And I understand that. So uh, why can't we solve this problem through consumer choice? Why can't we just say, I'm just going to eat good eggs and I'm only going to eat organic chickens? Uh, just because it would the the I don't know how we're going to convince enough people to to make that change right until till the majority of people or enough people to like create a shift in the industry make that change uh, at the consumer choice is just this small drop in the bucket and it's again it's a consumer choice I'm trying to make as often as possible let me make that clear um, but it, you know there when I was looking at this is a question I I kind of scratched at it a little bit when I was reporting this this latest piece and there's something I think it's called the, the well there's a difference between voting and buying is basically you know in California they have laws that are for, that forbid sort of caged laying hens um, which is a little bit of greenwashing but it's an interesting model and, and what you see there is there are people are more willing to vote to forbid that than to stop buying it right so that's an interesting thing right there. It's like if it's a cheaper choice at the grocery store, even someone who said, you know, I would pass a law that make this illegal is still going to be willing to go and do it. Um, and that makes it hard to, for just consumer choices to, to 
make that push if that's the way consumers are making choices. That's fascinating. You write that in the years since the 1997 bird flu outbreak in Hong Kong, which you were mentioning earlier, the disease has slowly spread across the globe, hitchhiking in the bodies of wild birds, which often show no symptoms. Leaps into domestic poultry were rare, the last U.S. outbreak occurred in 2014. But once the virus hit our farms, it grew more contagious, according to officials from the United States Department of Agriculture. The strengthened virus spread from farm to farm until after a then record 50 million birds were euthanized, the pandemic was contained. So how did Hong Kong contain the pandemic? Can't we just, or epidemic, can't we just do the exact same thing that Hong Kong did and the problem is solved? Well, that, this was the U.S. here. Like, so what Hong Kong did in 97 was they killed their 1.5 million birds. What we did in 2014, 2015 was we killed 50 million birds here. Um, and it worked back then because it was a different virus. Again, as I've been saying, these these things kind of grow and change. Um, the 2014, 2015 avian outbreak is fascinating to me because, I mean, basically where I got this information, some of the information for this piece was some like, industry journals where they they went and listened to what USDA officials had to say. And, and when they're talking to farmers, they say they're very much more revealing than when talking to the press of like, yep, it's clear to us that like this spread from farm to farm. It might've been, you know, careless farm workers doing this. Uh, the farmers themselves at these conferences talk about how they think like these massive bird farms produce such a, so much sort of floating stuff in the air that maybe that stuff carried it from farm to farm. Um, so yeah, it, it's a, it was a scary case back then, but back then it looked like it, it made the jump once it went from one wild bird into one farm and then farming practices carried it from farm to farm. This time the virus, uh, seems much more easily transferable between wild birds and farms. And so it's a different outbreak this time where it's sort of like many, many entry points. I think 85% of the outbreaks, according to one figure I saw are sort of new jumps from wild birds to farms. And so in part because we were you know, like didn't get a didn't think about how to contain this didn't think about our farming practices in the past 20 years uh, we've got this worst case now where the farming practices we have are, are much more at risk so you point out that it, it seems quite possible that every migratory season our industrial chicken farms will become oversized petri dishes for a potential super flu so what does that mean for the u.s poultry sector is that instability sustainable for the industry uh, at least in the short term, um, as as a lot of the mainstream coverage has pointed out, some of these companies are making record profits th profits this year because of the strange economics of eggs, right? Because it's this inelastic thing, losing six percent of laying hens can raise prices by sixty percent essentially, and so the the way the price goes up more than makes up for the the losses in the industry, um, and then you add to that that the, the the government then pays the farmers back for any birds that have to be killed. So it's a taxpayer expense. Uh, it's just it's it's a win-win-win for them, as far as I can see. I imagine it must reach a certain point where where that wouldn't be true. But at least for the time being, this chicken farm has not been a problem for this chicken flu has not been a problem for the the big chicken farmers. I want to get to that uh, chicken farmer or farm uh, bailout in a moment. But uh, how quickly can an outbreak followed by widespread transmission of a virus happen? I mean, you you write that uh, you when you consider uh, that uh, every migratory season, our industrial chicken farms will become oversized petri dishes for a potential super flu. You add that what makes that particularly scary is that the current strain is already too super. So how quickly can this virus 
can how how quickly can an outbreak happen followed by widespread widespread transmission? How I mean, can this happen just within a few months? Can this happen in a few weeks? Does it take years? How, how long would it take? I would have to leave that to a vi- virologist, but I think my the the problem is I don't think we know. I mean, it's just uh, what what I think back in '97, it wasn't. Yeah, it's just like these these genes are constantly morphing, right? Every flu virus, it, it enters a cell, it reproduces itself and bursts out of that cell. And, and there's so many millions of copies that, that evolution is much quicker in viruses than in, in sort of mammal species. Um, so it's just kind of always churning. And yeah, it's really hard to predict when a jump like that could happen. And you mentioned that it's not that small farms are immune to this disease. They might be better suited to fighting the disease, but they're not immune to this disease. Dozens of tiny flocks have been hit, backyard collections mostly raised by hobbyists who perhaps aren't always as cautious as professional farmers, so the birds or the hobbyists themselves wind up walking through infected piles of goose poo. So you you were mentioning earlier how it's a great thing to have your own chicken that's uh, laying eggs for yourself. It's a great way to have a connection between you and your food. But our backyard chicken farmers and even inflation chickens adding to the likelihood of animal to human transmission of viruses. Is that a better connection with nature leading to the potential greater potential for a pandemic? I mean, maybe. Again, this is some science that I, I haven't totally delved into, but I would I, I don't think so. Um my understanding is you right like these jumps are going to happen with with really large scales of exposure so there there has been one case one positive test in the US and the CDC i think says they don't know if it was actually uh, an infection or just like the presence of a virus that uh, showed up on the test. But the guy who who tested positive was a prison laborer who was cleaning up a euthanized chicken farm. So it's the scale of exposure that you have to have, I think, is pretty high. Um, so my hope, at least, would be these small-scale chicken farms. I mean, you need to be careful with them. You might lose your birds. Um, but as long as you're taking basic precautions to keep the birds away from wild birds, or if they do die, you know, put some gloves on and carefully dispose of those bodies, I don't think... Um, backyard chicken farmers need to be uh, super concerned. They, they need to be cautious, but they're not going to cause a pandemic, I don't believe. But these small commercial farms that you talk about, uh, you write about, are you were saying have somewhere between 15 and 25,000 birds. You explain how you spoke to several farmers who raise chickens at this scale. One suggested he existed in a kind of Goldilocks zone. He's more cautious than backyard growers, but unlike the big farms, he does not have low-wage employees coming and going from his facility. Why does big agriculture depend on low-wage workers, but the so-called small operations do not? I mean, again, it's the, the economics of scale. When you have a, a million birds laying hens, you, you need... I don't, I don't actually know a ton of what goes on in, in those laying farms labor-wise, but you definitely need people out there collecting them, whereas 20,000 birds, you know, that's one one farmer, one farm family will be able to, to collect... Uh, those eggs more easily. So uh, yeah, I was a little uncomfortable with, with some of this in some ways. It just, I, I don't want to blame it on low wage employees. But um, yeah, I, I do think there's a valid case of, of if, if you are the sole person and your income totally depends on that flock, you're going to be more careful with the birds. And you quote Tom Flacco, the CEO of Pete and Jerry's, which is one of these small scale operations, uh, saying that, um, noting that since the farmers he works with don't use antibiotics, they already have strict biosecurity in place. How do antibiotics undermine biosecurity? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, like to his point, he's using the word there. And I should say P Jerry's is, is not a small farm, but it's an interesting model of like they they contract with hundreds of small farmers around the country so that and, and you can get those eggs into grocery store shelves around the country um, that are that are more humanely raised. But I, he seems to use the word biosecurity differently than other uh, other farmers with other production methods in, in that in his case, biosecurity means, you know, let's make sure we're looking at every chicken every day to make sure that they're healthy and we can get rid of the ones that aren't healthy um, so that, that things don't spread. I think when you, you know, pump your birds full of antibiotics, it, it gives you a false sense of sec security of like, well, that that is taking care of whatever health issues are there um, and are not giving that same sort of careful attention to what's going on in your flock. On that bailout, you write that to focus only on grocery store prices is to miss the full costs of eggs. The 2014-2015 crisis cost the federal government $879 million, including indemnities paid to chicken companies. According to one estimate, the ripple effects across the U.S. economy reached $3.3 billion. Is the U.S. bailing out big chicken operations, despite those operations being incubators for the virus that led to the largest chicken massacre ever, which is why they are being bailed out? Are we bailing out chicken operations that exacerbated, if not created, the problem from which they are suffering and demanding reimbursement. That seems to be the case. Yeah, I haven't dug in, dug into the specifics of sort of like crop insurance and indemnities and, and chicken farming, but um, yeah, it seems to me, as I understand it, um, the the big companies are getting paid back for their losses, and often for the big companies, often they're contracting with local farmers who don't actually own the birds themselves. So one thing I, I believe may be the case is sort of the smallest level of farmer working for the big companies isn't getting paid back. It's it's the, you know, Pilgrim's Pride themselves or these big brands are are the ones who have always owned the bird and, and would then therefore get that crop insurance. So you were pointing out how uh, these uh, egg producers are now having record profits. Is avian flu good for the bottom line of big players in the chicken industry? And if, if, if it is, what does that tell you about capitalism when egg producers are rewarded by or, the, or their, their model of capitalism when egg producers are rewarded by record profits when the worst avian flu to ever hit the U.S. occurs? Yeah, one thing it tells me is I don't I don't think we have capitalism in a pure form. I'm not sure I would want to prefer that, but not sure that that's what I would want. But um, it's just a reminder of uh, how much federal invent intervention there is that helps a lot of big uh, agricultural companies. Um, but yeah, it, do it does seem that um, you know at least at the scale, losing six percent of hens uh, is okay and, and still leads to record profits. Again, I think there could be a world where if these farms were losing fifty percent of their birds. If 50% of the supply disappeared, that, that actually might cripple these farms. But for now, they're doing just fine. And you mentioned that Andrew DeCarolis, uh, uh, the executive director of the nonprofit Farm Forward, pointed out that the current prices are due to markup. With conventional eggs providing a cheap alternative, grocery stores can artificially raise the price of ethically raised eggs after charging or, or, sorry, charging more than twice what they pay to the egg companies, uh, Corolis said. Uh, he writes to you that, yes, giving chickens access to pasture or raising breeds of chickens with more robust immune systems costs more, but it doesn't cost three times more than conventional practices. So are high-end eggs affected by pr price gouging, but conventional eggs are not? Are people buying high-end eggs to supplement the purchase of conventional eggs that are from these factory farms? 
Uh, I think the price difference doesn't go back to the factory farms. It just goes back to, to the Whole Foods or the other retailers. But um, yeah, I mean, at this point, it, because it is such a small sliver of the market, it's kind of hard to hard to parcel or piece out what you know the true cost of well-produced eggs would look like. Um, in some of the news coverage I was reading, I mean, there were an organic farmer told the uh, told a newspaper in Minnesota of just like. He's like, yeah, I'm, I'm right now. I'm selling my eggs for less than conventional eggs, but um, he, he's like, I can't, can't drop that price because those prices are going to go down. It's just, again, it's the the economics of this are so tangled, and so um, I have been paying seven dollars a dozen for eggs, but it's a little infuriating to me if, to to realize that you know if we had laws in place that said let's produce our eggs in a humane and healthful fashion for everyone, I could potentially be paying much less than that. One last question for you, Boyce. We have been speaking with award-winning writer Boyce Upholt, who wrote the New Republic article, The Frightening Cost of Cheap Eggs, Why Paying More for Eggs Could Save Us from Another Pandemic. And uh, you can follow Boyce on Twitter at Boyce Upholt, and you can find out more about Boyce at BoyceUpholt.com. One last question for you, Boyce, and as always, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write that since my trip to Nebraska last summer, which we discussed, and you can find that interview by going to thisishell.com and searching on Boyce's last name, Upholt. When, uh, since my trip to Nebraska last summer, I've been buying eggs I know come from smaller flocks. They typically cost me around $7 per dozen, a steal by my math, if it means preventing a pandemic on the scale of COVID-19, which cost the U.S. an estimated $16 trillion. What is the like what do you think is the likelihood the public will come up with that same math especially when that cannot fit they can't fit not everybody can fit seven dollar a dozen eggs into their grocery budget do you think people will be doing that math saying okay i'll spend a little bit more for eggs because otherwise it might mean we have another pandemic my fear is not, and again, to my point, it's like me paying that seven dollars. I'm not sure that makes the difference. I think we really need laws in place, and so my big fear is that uh, you know we might not make these changes until the next pandemic hits and it hits off of a farm, and then all of a sudden, a lot of people will be like, "Huh, oh, didn't see that coming. We better fix that." So, um, yeah, that's my dark conclusion right now. Yeah, I wish we would see it coming, and I wish we had a media telling us that it's uh, it's very likely that it is coming, and I wish we had a government that was warning us. It's just none of that is happening. Boyce, I really appreciate you being back on the show. And when your book does come out on the Mississippi River, we would love to have you back on. Wonderful. Thanks, Chuck. All right. Take care. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell if what you just heard from Boyce Upholt on the real reason for the price of eggs skyrocketing. If that made you realize that, yes, this really is hell. Show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which I believe is going to be streaming live on Friday at 11 a.m. Chicago time this week. And his podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a moment. Or you can show your support at completely listener supported. This is hell by visiting this is hell.com and clicking on support. Lindsay, yesterday we did all, or not all of them, but we did all of the Patreon responses we had to the question from Hell up until that point. Please remind us, what is this week's question from Hell, and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from Hell is, if you could spy on anyone or anything in the United States, who or what would it be? It wouldn't be a chicken farm. I don't want to see what's going on in there. 
That would be gross. <laughs> yes, uh, yes, I can live without doing that, I suppose. I don't know. I feel like we all kind of know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In my uh, neighborhood, a lot of the people in my neighborhood, they either worked, you know, for the big three because uh, I lived outside of Detroit, um, or they worked in slaughterhouses. So I have been to slaughterhouses, and it is really awful, and it has a huge impact on people. My best friend when I was a little kid, he was a, veg- or he was a uh, vegetarian. He was like, I just can't do this. I can't, I can't be in a slaughterhouse. He was on the kill floor. He was taking the gun and shooting them in the back of the head. And he would say, he was like, I just can't do this anymore. I'm going to be a vegetarian. I'm going to be a vegetarian. And then he got gored by a cow that had taken, been given too many hormones. So it already had tiny, it was a calf, but already had horns. And he got gored by one. And he said after that, he loved eating meat because he hated the cow so much. <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, well, you know, I I feel like I follow a lot of farmers on social media, um, and I like to follow cow farmers, meat farmers. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it's about as close as I can get to <laughs> without going there myself. But I think that, you know, people who raise cattle in a humane way, like, they really love their animals, and when they kill them to eat them, like, that, they appreciate, you know, it's... It, you appreciate them more, you know? Yeah, it's just like when people tell me that they go, um, uh, they do catch and release fishing. I just don't get it. I don't get people who hunt for sport. You know, like catch and release fishing, that's a lot like uh, you just go walk out in the woods and instead of uh, hunting and killing a deer, you just go punch it in the face and walk away. I just don't, I, yeah, if you're gonna <laughs> hunt, eat the damn food. Yeah, I, I agree with that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, go ahead. Um, yes, so our question from Hell yeah, what is, was it? <laughs> uh, is if you could spy on anyone or anything in the United States, who or what would it be? And on Facebook, we have some responses. Sweet. From Jack B., we have probably my five-year-old's preschool because this is hell. <laughs> wow. What? Wow. <laughs> I don't know. Like, it's, with this fearing? spying question, I guess they like, get a little creepy sometimes. It, it is. <laughs> um, Dan K. says, um, if you could spy on anyone or anything in the United States, who or what would it be? Dan K. says, to know, but it sure wouldn't be your GI tract. Oh my God. Thanks, Dan. (laughs) Really appreciate that. Wow. Um, All right. That's a non-answer, but okay. Uh, Wachik R says, your mom, again, kind of (laughs) creepy. Laddie Scott O says, the dream police. Oh God. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, it's a reference to a, a 1970s song that's awful. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that happened yesterday too. Okay. Yes. Uh, Fabio AJL says, My FBI handler's internet history. Oh, there you go. That makes sense. And then from Pete V, if you could spy on anyone or anything in the United States, who would, or what would it be? Pete V says, Salma Hayek. Again, a little creepy. Really creepy. <laughs> really creepy. I hope that means like he wants to figure out like how how she practices to be such a great actress. I'm sure. How does she like, put on what, that makeup to yeah. look like Frida Kahlo? What, how what, does she do it? How does she rehearse for her auditions? I'm sure you know? that's... Because he, Pete wants to be a great actress like Selma Hayek. And yes. It has nothing to do with her looks or body. No, All right. it, it's just about... <laughs> it's He wants to be a thespian. <laughs> yes. 
All right, we have like three more responses on Facebook. Perhaps I should leave them. No, for... let's let's do those, and then we'll get to Twitter and the rest of Patreon tomorrow with Dan. There's only one response on t- Twitter for now. I just retweeted it to see if we can get some more by tomorrow. But if you want me to keep reading them, uh, yeah, sure. Why not? Uh, Bogey G says Joan Jet. Is that creepy? I don't really know who Joan Jett is. Again, I feel uh, like I should. Who are they? Uh, she <laughs> is a uh, 1970s singer. There was a there was an all woman rock band, The Runaways, from the 70s. That was really, really good. And then they broke up and turned into a whole bunch of different bands that were and solo projects that were really, really bad. But I think you'd like The Runaways. Probably. That's cool. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Still don't want to be spying on Joan Jett. Yeah, just spy. You know, that's the whole thing. If we have people, I'm assuming are men. I can confirm Pete V is one. Spying on women. <laughs> that is just always a little bit suspect. Yes. You know, <laughs> you know it's peeping Tom, yeah. not <laughs> peeping Tomala. I don't know. What's the, <laughs> what's the female version of Tom? I, no, n- I don't the even name. know. Uh, that's our next question from Hal. <laughs> <laughs> okay, from Kim G. Uh, MVP Kim G says, "I kind of want to know what my neighbor is up to with this, with his daily delivery of multiple Amazon packages. Where is he putting all that stuff? Is what is the stuff? Questions I could perhaps ask him, but would rather just see in the apartment for a few minutes undetected." Well, I'll give you a heads up. I believe your neighbor is a hoarder. <laughs> <laughs> Any uh, more? Um, just one from SLS, SLS says Henry Kissinger. <laughs> there you go. Now so, that's the person you should be spying on, and everybody should be spying on on a regular basis. That yeah. makes sense. Let me finish his response, though. It says, so that I could be the one to announce that the Kissinger is dead festivities. <laughs> Sorry, let me repeat. Henry Kissinger, so that I could be the one to announce that the Kissinger is dead festivities may begin. And they will begin. We will be having a party when Hammer and Hank finally dies. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to us at Chuck at thisishell.com or if you are a Patreon patron you can post your response on our Patreon page but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth again Lindsay what is Jeff uh, what's his moment about this week during this week's moment Jeff shows us the invisible fantastic fantastic I'm legally blind he's showing us the invisible this thing is going to work out great fits like a glove it's time for nasty gnarly nauseous naughty nerdy icky drippy sticky goopy gloppy globby this week in rotten history i usually say gory but i decided yesterday that i'm not going to say gory anymore because that's your last name and i don't want it to be related to anything that's rotten on february 14th 1929 94 years ago this week and 94 years ago today if you are listening to the live stream at 2122 North Clark Street on the north side of Chicago, two men in police uniforms arrived at a truck garage. Sounds fine. Owned by members of the so-called North Side Gang, a criminal organization who distributed alcoholic beverages to area businesses and speakeasies in defiance of federal prohibition. 
if we could only make America great again by prohibiting alcohol and giving a huge revenue stream to organized crime, that would be really great. Five members of the gang were present, along with two associates, and given that the garage was a staging area for stolen liquor, they likely assumed it was a police raid. But the phony cops were quickly followed by two other men in street clothes armed with submachine guns who forced them all to line up against a brick wall and then blew them away, spraying them with hundreds of bullets. People on the street saw the four assailants flee the location, and when the real police officers arrived a few minutes later, they found six men dead, along with a seventh gravely injured, seventh gravely injured man who would survive only for a few more hours. Under questioning, he refused to identify the gunman, insisting, quote, Nobody shot me. But as news of the multiple murder made headlines, there was a widespread belief that Al Capone had ordered it. And to this day, this murderer, who allegedly ordered the execution, is celebrated in Chicago. It's so annoying. It was well known that for several years, the predominantly Irish-American Northside gang, led by George Bugs Moran, had come increasingly into conflict with the Chicago outfit, a predominantly Italian-American syndicate based on the Southside, also involved in bootlegging and headed by Al Capone. But police never gathered enough evidence to indict Capone, nor was anyone else ever arrested or jailed for the so-called St. Valentine's Day Massacre. To this day, the crime remains officially unsolved because remember the police really they don't solve crimes that's not their thing two years later the capone would be convicted for income tax evasion and sent to prison the infamous truck garage was torn down in the 1960s and the scene of the crime is now an empty lot on a busy street in one of chicago's most affluent and gentrified neighborhoods just a short walk from the lincoln park zoo if you're ever visiting the zoo and want to Go look at an empty lot. It's not marked by any sign or historic plaque, but buses full of tourists can occasionally be seen slowing down for a quick look at the empty lot. And again, it's an empty freaking lot. No marker, nothing. And tourists take pictures of it on a daily basis. Because why? I don't know. To show your friends and family that you drove by a nearly 100-year-old murder scene that's now an empty lot? What is with Americans in celebrating violence and the people who caused it? And what's with bars here in Chicago that are Al Capone-themed or have a picture of him hanging on the wall, and it's always the same picture? Is that a dog whistle that it's a mob bar? I know that if you see a Chicago flag over the bar, it's, there's a possibility that there may be a police officer who is an investor in the bar. It's only a possibility. But what's with the picture of Al Capone? Or does, does the bar owner support murder? Can we please stop celebrating a monster? Also in Rotten History on February 14th, 1981, 42 years ago this week, fire today if you're listening live on the stream fire broke out during a valentine's day disco dance at the stardust nightclub in dublin ireland investigators would later conclude that it began with an electrical spark in a storage room containing several dozen large drums of cooking oil because nothing goes with disco dancing like fried food apparently 
The fire spread quickly. I just can't imagine dancing all night and then eating fried food. The fire spread quickly, filling the club with smoke and causing burning chunks of ceiling material to fall on top of the crowd. See? Fried food is bad for you. As panic grew and patrons tried frantically to escape, many found the exit doors padlocked and windows covered with metal bars. Others crowded through a set of doors they mistook as an exit, only to find themselves trapped in the men's restroom. 48 people were killed, with another 214 injured. Most were in their early 20s or late teens. A court later awarded cash compensation to some victims and their families, but while investigators found abundant evidence of non-compliance with fire safety regulations, the nightclub owners were never charged with a crime. Now that's rotten history, and this is Hell. Lindsay, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell? Tomorrow we have Elizabeth Samet, author of Looking for the Good War, American Amnesia, and the Violent Pursuit of Happiness. Elizabeth is a professor of English at West Point. And I will be repeating a disclaimer throughout that interview. Uh, every opinion, everything that she says is not reflective of West Point in any way whatsoever. All of the thoughts that she will be sharing are her own and have nothing to do with West Point. And when I got that message from her that I had to read that disclaimer, I couldn't be happier. And of course, we will have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. I am your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. So, Lindsay, are you available on Friday at 11 a.m. to do the Patreon podcast, or do I need to ask Dan if he can do it? Uh, yes, I think that I should be able to do it. Okay. And yeah, Dan and I were just emailing about it, so I think it should be fine. Okay. So but I was going to say, you can call the rotten history gory. I kind of like it. You know? <laughs> I know, it I makes me think about myself. No, I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes it's the only word that can describe things that are very bloody and disgusting, you know? Do you know how you got that name? No. It, well, it, well, actually, um, I think that gory is a place in Scotland, and so I think that's where the last name Gory perhaps comes from I was going to guess Ireland but yeah that makes sense too uh, that, That's what I was going to say It was a, a, probably a town name Mertz just means store Like you'd put out a sign that says Mertz Like for merchant Or Mers, M-E-R-Z like Mers apothecary All that means is store or merchant So at some point somebody in my family Had enough money to own a store Apparently that was several centuries ago <laughs> so uh we are very happy now to be on five different outlets including chicago sound experiment wnur lumpen radio wlpn radio free moscow krfp internet radio station beware the radio in london beware the radio.com the site's not called beware the radio in london it's in london and uh university of winnipeg community radio ckuw more voices more choices which is broadcast from treaty one territory and the homeland of the metis nation ckuw is doing their annual fundraiser and for whatever reason they want to interview me so what we are doing on patreon this week at a special time 11 a.m friday morning february 17th the Patreon podcast will be me being interviewed by CKUW, and the only place you can hear that happen live or happen at all, because it's going to be podcast later on, but it's going to be on Patreon. So you got to subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. If you want to hear me interviewed, 
buy a radio station in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Land of Treaty 1. So, again, that's patreon.com slash this is hell this Friday morning at 11 a.m. Chicago time. Join us as I will be interviewed by somebody from Winnipeg. If you want to hear someone interview me instead of me interviewing someone, the only way you can do that is by subscribing to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Thanks to Lindsay Gorey for producing. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. This is not democracy now or ever. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>